millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Are you sick of staying in or perhaps just generally fed up with announcements from the likes of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings? Well, you might want to distract yourself for the next hour with this very special 80th edition of the Full Throttle Bike Racing Podcast from us here at Eurosport. First of all, hello from myself, Greg Haynes. I'd just like to say thank you very much to all of you, not just from me, but from Pete Burton as well, who puts in so much effort with the editing, the production, and the promotion of the Full Throttle podcast and all of the guys back at base in London. Thank you very much, first of all, to all of you and from all of us to you guys listening back at home because it's been great to see the podcast build up since March 2018 when we kicked off. And as I say, this is the 80th edition. So thank you very much to all of you who have subscribed and continue to listen to this day. Please feel free to keep tweeting us at Eurosport underscore UK and Greg Haynes TV with any ideas, suggestions. And what I'd also be quite keen to see, actually, is pictures of where you listen to us from. Uh, Only the ones we can obviously retweet. Nothing inappropriate, please. But uh, I don't know. Are you in your bedroom? Are you on the bus? Probably not at the moment on the bus, but you know what I mean. Are you on the beach? I don't know. Send us in your pictures and we'll be uh, sharing and retweeting a few of those. Eurosport underscore UK and Greg Haynes TV. Now, To go along with this 80th edition of Full Throttle, I'm delighted to say, I'm thrilled to say that Eurosport will be bringing you live bike racing action this weekend. Moto America has announced a provisional calendar kicking off at Road America live on Eurosport this weekend. So we'll be bringing you all of the action from the team there on site in the States Jason Pridmore, Greg White will be there. We'll also have another commentator of theirs, Michael Hill, who also happens to be the World Superbike Paddock Show host, joining us on the show next week as Michael and I will be digesting all of the happenings of round one of Motor America, which he's having to broadcast from his home in London because of the travel restrictions. So that's going to be interesting. But in the meantime, for episode 80, joining us is one of the most familiar voices in the British Superbike Championship. It's Larry Carter. He's been working for the organization since the turn of the new millennium, celebrating his 21st birthday in the paddock this year. Hopefully we will get some racing. Watch out, hopefully, for a BSB calendar coming up very soon. The general feeling is we're going to get some action, quite possibly, across August, September and October. So let's just not say too much too soon, but keep an eye on the social media and on the websites for that. But in the meantime, Larry Carter... He broadcasts alongside the legendary Fred Clark. He works with BSB Radio. You can hear Larry's voice both on BSB Radio and also all around the circuit when you go to watch BSB Trackside. And there's some real anecdotes coming up in today's show, I can tell you that. We've got the time when Shaky Byrne visited Larry and his unfortunate wife at 3 a.m. in their home. We've also got the time that Larry was literally run over very badly indeed at the pit lane in Donington Park in 2004. All of that and plenty more coming up in today's Full Throttle. And he's on the line with us now from North Allerton, about 10 miles up the road from the Croft circuit. Larry, first of all, I suppose I've got to start with a question about the coronavirus situation. How are you coping? Hi, Greg. Yeah, we're okay. We're we're fine. Uh, Thanks very much. The uh, the situation is very frustrating for everybody, isn't it? It, uh, 
um, when you go on holiday, you, you, you kind of know that there's a, an end date, isn't there, when you've got to pack your bags and come yeah. home. But the, the problem with the, the virus and uh, COVID-19, coronavirus, call it what you want, is um, we don't know when it's going to end. That, that, that is the frustrating factor. We, you know, we're... Uh, luckily, we you know we're very healthy, and you know that's the first and foremost, and we're behaving ourselves and doing as we're told by staying in most of the time. But um, it's um, it's getting to the point now where you know we're we're rapidly moving through what is our race season, and with each and every passing weekend, um, we're losing valuable weekends that could contribute to the towards the championship. And um, I think just like everybody involved in professional motorsport, I would just like to get going, really. We've we've had all winter off, effectively, which is the usual downtime. And, you know, here we are sort of like in in spring when we, we should uh, really be getting some indication as to, as far as BSB is concerned, two or three rounds into the championship and starting to think about, um, you know, how the championship's going to pan out. But it's frustrating for everybody, but hopefully we uh, we will see the, the light at the end of the tunnel before too long. Yeah, I must say I'm missing you quite a lot, Larry, not least, of course, because of the uh, brilliant supply of Parma Violet sweets that you bring to the BSB venues and kindly give to me. I mean, I guess we're going to have a lot of those to catch up with, aren't we, when we do get back? Well, anybody knows, um, Scoop Carter knows that there's the infamous sweet cupboard, <laughs> of course, which... Yeah. Um, which has the various goodies, never mind all this health food and stuff like that, is we've got a good supply of sweets. Uh, and for those people that perhaps don't know, is Greg, uh, he spends a lot of his time uh, in foreign shores and they don't have Palmer Violet. So he no, just happened to, mm. to, to mention uh, at one point in time that um, how he loved these uh, these particular sweets. And I said, <laughs> well, they sell them in my local local shop. You know, So it's now become a little bit of a tradition is that uh, just before a BSB meeting, I venture off to the local shop, get get a supply of uh, various other sweets and palmer violets and everything else and uh, drop them off in in the Eurosport office where Greg is. And it's become a little bit of a tradition now. But, um, but yeah, they're all piled up here, Greg. When we get going again, there's a, there's a good supply for you. Anyway, it's very kind of you. And it does make a difference, doesn't it, when you go into the media centre or wherever we are at the track. You know, sometimes you need a bit of a sugar boost, don't you? Um, yeah, something you need a, a boost of a lot of things. Usually, the the journalists in there they can't get any work done for drinking tea and coffee, can they? That's that's usually the yes. the, the, the problem. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. There's a good ambience at, at BSP right the way through the paddock. I, I felt I've had the privilege of working professionally in the paddock now for over twenty years, and um, you know, people come, people go. Riders come, riders go. Teams come, teams go. But uh, generally speaking, the the you know there is a paddock community there. And we all tend to look out for each other as well. I, I think that that uh, that is the case. You know, you consider that, you know, in a media centre, and we don't um, uh, uh, reckon that anybody should do this, but you leave a lot of your um, valuable possessions out, don't you? Mm, you know, we, we've yeah. got all our working equipment there that you sit next to somebody and you, you just, um, you know, you leave your phone on charge and everything else, and you just know for a fact that it's, um, it's going to be there when, when we get back. But generally speaking, the, the paddock is a, a very, very... Uh, amiable community perhaps that's why i've been part of it for as long as what i, I have been because you know i generally like the people that, uh, that, that that are there indeed i mean there's so much to talk about we've been talking for a few minutes haven't we before we've started recording and we've been talking on twitter in the last few days running up to the interview but clearly we're not going to get everything we want to into half an hour but where, where do we start larry because anyone who's watched bsb on the telly will have seen you of course bumping into james whittam on the grid walks with eurosport i'm often getting in your way aren't i for the itv4 grid walks uh, anyone who's heard bsb radio will have heard you of course alongside the one and only fred clark you're there doing all the pit reporting but again as you said you've been around in racing for a long time now how did it actually all start what was the first larry carter memory of uh, car racing or bike racing you know what's the very earliest memory for you um, it's a question I do get asked quite a lot, Greg. Um, firstly, there's no career plan, nothing like that. As um, <laughs> as a kid at school, I was the most shyest introvert person that you would ever meet. Uh, I used to dread the teacher asking me a question, having to stick my hand up or stand up in front of class and answer me a too, question. Me too, actually. Yeah, I hated he, that. Yeah, and, and for, for whatever reason, I, I just um, I, I hated that. Um, my, my involvement with motorsport, I guess, stems back to... Um, my extended family. Um, my mum was the youngest of um, a family whereby her three elder brothers competed in various ways, mainly scrambling, as they called it back in the day, motocross as it is nowadays, trials riding, grass track, that sort of thing. Um, never professionally, but uh, they were, from what I could gather, they were they were quite good. Um, and 
with living just, what, 10 miles up the road from Croft back in the 1960s and 1970s, where there was something on just about every weekend, I used to uh, pester the life out of um, uh, my poor auntie to take me to Croft, because obviously I was too young to go on my own, and I'd got this uh, this inkling for motorsport from, from somewhere, and um, she uh, she used to have to take me in her old Fort Thames van up to, to Croft, mm. and whether it was bikes, cars, there was always something on, and it just kind of stemmed from there. Um, my very earliest memories are from being trackside at Croft and watching racing, mainly cars at the, the, the time, um, right the way through to um, going through school i never competed off-road or anything as a as a schoolboy, but you get a moped at 16 and then the next thing is that um you're going to be the next world champion and uh, I've, i have always been and still am a massive barry sheen fan um i didn't do the football and the cricket and the pop stars and things like that i used to write barry sheen and draw donald ducks everywhere uh in my school exercise books which i used to get into <laughs> awful trouble for um, and I was going to be, you know, another world champion. And uh, so I got my Suzuki AP50 and we, uh, with a group of mates, then all of a sudden we get some bigger road bikes and it became rapidly apparent to me that um, I really did enjoy going going quickly. Um, I had a fairly serious accident on the road, uh, which necessitated me to decide what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to ride more or less illegally on the roads or, or to take up racing and that's what i did i started racing in 1983 um got lapped and finished last in my first race and right the way through the uh, the next decade or so we raced and i'm pleased to say got a little bit better um and ended up racing in the british championship uh towards the late 1980s um and then like most people ran out of money and had to make a decision and sadly that was to it in but i did want to i've run my own team for 10 years and i wanted to put that expertise to use so i uh, i seconded one or two of the local hopefuls around here in north allerton and the surrounding areas and uh, i helped them i managed one or two teams and helped promote them and and let the local newspapers and everything else uh, know how they were getting on um to the point that people started contacting me and saying, instead of all these other guys, can you mention my mate in the local newspaper? And can you send some information out? And can you do as a press pack? And one thing led to another. And uh, eventually I, um, I had to make a decision because I was getting so much work effectively from the, uh, you know, from the PR and communications and promotional side of it that um, I ended up leaving my, uh, my job to, to do that. Um, the, then that's that's what we were doing. We we started out doing communications and um, press releases for um, people like Paul Bird, who'd spotted our press when we were uh, at a BSB round. Uh, Rob McElnay was a good friend of mine and a sparring partner from the Auto 66 Club, Paul Major. They asked me to get involved with a company called Form, which is a federation of motorcycle road racing motorcyclists. And they started hosting press conferences at uh, BSB rounds to try and emulate what was happening at Grand Prix. They asked me to go along, paid a little bit of my petrol money to, to go there, um, ended up going along there. And um, the next thing is I got a tap on the shoulder from a certain commentator of uh, repute called Fred Clark, which is the second part of the career. Um, Fred didn't have his usual number two to do a podium presentation. Um, could I do it? Um, here's a microphone and off you go. Um, and that was uh, year 2000. And since then, Fred and I have more or less been a, a, a team at PSB where he's the, the number one. He's the uh, anchorman in the, the main commentary box. And I'm the roving reporter trying to get the news firsthand. Hence why the nickname for somebody who gets a, an exclusive score stories scoop. And uh, that was, was where Fred decided that uh, my nickname should be because I was the man going down pit lane and trying to rumble the stories out of the various people. And I'm um, pleased to say that the Fred and Scoop show, once we uh, hopefully get this coronavirus out with, we'll be celebrating our 20th year together this year. So uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's fantastic. And that's, you know, over the time, obviously, I've had involvement with riders in management roles and consultation roles and um, various other jobs that we've taken on in two wheels and four wheels. It's been a very varied career over the, the past 20, 25 years or so, Greg. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, been really, really enjoyable. But no business plan to get there, no no career plan, nothing like that. You 
Yes, they do say that, you know, you don't have to be very good. You just have to be lucky, don't you? And I was in the right place at the right time, I guess. I suppose, Larry, it wouldn't be right for us to proceed without just talking quickly about Fred Clark. I mean, how old is Fred now? I'm sure he won't mind us saying, will he? Um, he's an indeterminate age, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, he, Fred is a remarkable character, isn't he? And the energy he has, whether it's in the commentary or just when you see him around the circuit, he's one of the most enthusiastic people you could ever meet, and he's still just as sharp now as he always was. Um, yeah, um, you, you say you should never meet your heroes, don't you? Well, yeah, Barry yeah. was my hero, and I met Barry on a number of occasions, and even had the privilege of interviewing him uh, on the grid. Anybody that follows me on Twitter or Facebook will see me with my bleached blonde hair um, in my Demon Vimto shirt, where, which where I was working for Paul Bird at the time, um, <laughs> holding a microphone on the grid because Fred couldn't get anybody to do the grid interviews. And that was more or less when Fred and I started out. That was the year 2000 British Grand Prix at Donington Park. And uh, I was interviewing Barry there. Uh, but Fred, uh, he's, if ever I rocked up at a race meeting, this, this gives you an indication how long he's been doing it, is, you know, I was still at school when uh, I first heard Fred Clark commentating and he'd been doing it 10 years then. Wow, wow. An in- indication how long he's been. He started once. Well, it's no secret. He started commentary in the mid 1960s, and uh, he's still going strong now. And a race meeting for me wasn't a race meeting without Fred Clark commentating. Now, with all due respect to Eddie Dow and Eddie Fitch, Chris Carter, and Dave Hardy and uh, John Ward and Toby, everybody else that's been. Uh, commentating and, and the current incumbent of yourself, James Whitton, James Hayden, Jack Burnicle and company. Um, a race meeting for, wasn't a race meeting without Fred commentating. And and uh, Fred commentated on my career on a number of races that I did. And um, it was it was rather surreal when, when he asked me, and I'm kind of thinking, you know, this this guy, this legend wants, wants yeah. me to, to, to work with him. And it's fair to say that you know, that we've struck up um, a really good friendship uh, as well as, you know, professional relationship, which has obviously stood the test of time because we we, all, we don't take ourselves too seriously, Greg. That, that's the first thing any BSB fan or, or, or paddock regular will know that we're, we're, we're forever taking the mick out of each other or taking the mick out of ourselves or, or whatever. Um, we do that. And of course, there's the serious side to it. And, you know, we, we're never too flippant about things. But um, Fred and I have kind of formed a, a, a bit of a, a, a unique, double act's not the right word, but uh, my name's Larry Carter, I'm Norman Scoop. Fred Clark isn't Fred. Not many people know that his, his name isn't Fred. Fred is a nickname. His mm-hmm. name is Peter Clark. And so we, you know, Peter Clark and Larry Carter rock up at a race meeting, and then we have to become the Fred and Scoop show. And, you know, <laughs> that's, that's great because, you know, it, it, it's obvious that, you know, if we weren't any good at what we did and people didn't like us, we'd have, get rid of us. It's simple as that. We, yeah, you know, the, yeah. the fans would tell us we we don't we don't um, encourage uh, lots of of um, lovings and things like that with the fans. We're there to do a job. We try and interact with the fans as much as we can. And from my perspective, I ask the questions that I want the answers to, knowing full well that it's the questions that the um, the general public want the questions to, you know, shaky why you're off you know, why you're off the, the pace this weekend. What's what's matter? You know, now I may know that he's you know, he's fallen off his mountain bike during the week and he's you know, he's been riding with a broken collarbone which nobody knows about. You know, the Scott Redding saga at the start of last year was, mm. was something where no nobody had to know about the, this broken femur of Scott's which you know, which obviously been Part of or being included with Paul Bird's team in pre-season testing, where you know where I was sworn to secrecy, I couldn't tell anybody that Scott had this yeah. broken leg. And you know the the journalist side of me wanted to make sure that mitigate the reason that Scott's perhaps not as high up the leaderboard as what he should be is because he has got this problem. But you know you, you're not allowed to to, to do that. Mm, yeah. Well, you know Fred, yeah, he's he's, he's great. Yeah, I I always say where would we be without him? Um, it's a difficult job. You you know you're a very good commentator in your own right, but Fred is unique. His his knowledge is um, uh, the, the, the the sheer history that that he exudes. And I can set him a little task by saying, "Do you remember the British Grand Prix in 1977, Fred?" Oh yes, yeah, yeah, and he, and he <laughs> give give him give him a, a few minutes, and he will have a reference to that in in written notes. He's covered over two and a half thousand meetings, I think we, we reckoned in that time. And he has notes, Greg, 
of every race from every race meeting, whether it's club meeting wow. Wow. or whether it's a, um, you know, a, a Grand Prix World Championship meeting or anything like that, he can look and he can then put a, a note in saying, on lap three, so-and-so took the lead, on lap five, so-and-so fell off, lap seven, so-and-so developed a machine problem, and so-and-so won. And you've heard of the illustrious Baldrick, uh, that's Jeff Judges. That's his lap score. It has been for many years. Well, what Fred does is he takes Jeff's um, uh, notes home on a weekend. Jeff just writes a lap chart and notes down things like um, so-and-so retired or so-and-so fell off or whatever. And then Fred will just dissect them notes into his own little shorthand and file them away in his, his file. doesn't have computers and stuff like that. It's all done manually. And uh, hence why if you ever see Fred Clark with about four suitcases, then... They're not close or anything like that. <laughs> They're all just literally his notes over over fifty five years of commentating. So, and his uh, TV monitors as well, of course, Larry, because Fred does need to make sure he has good quality pictures through from the TV pictures and the timing screens. He brings his own screens to the events, doesn't he, just to make sure he's got good enough TVs. Experience over the years has taught him that not to rely on things. <laughs> uh, he brings his own stool, and uh, he, you know, there's there's all sorts. Of, at, at, at some point soon, Greg, I am going to write a book um, with oh, Greg. Good. Uh, that would is, be good. It is something that we have tentatively discussed. I've actually made a start of my own book, not that anybody wants to read that, but just for the sake of getting a little bit of experience. I've been asked by one or two people to help them pen a few memoirs, and I thought, well, best do my own first to see what it all entails. So we're halfway through doing that. But um, oh, yeah, good. at some point in time, I think that... Um, Fred, it needs to go into writing, and, and that is something that we've very, very tentatively discussed over the past uh, few years. And it's something that um, if he wants me to, to help him with that, I'd be very, very privileged. If um, you know, if it comes to fruition, then then great. But um, yeah, we'll uh, as as my mum used to say to me, "You'll miss me when I've gone," and I think that's the case with Fred. Is we take him for granted, and we have done for a long time. I spoke to him a couple of days ago. He's on good form. He's very frustrated, like the rest of us that um, we can't wait to get things going um, and he's up for it again this season and you know let's let's just hope that we do get some action whereby commentators and uh, people like you and I and Fred are needed uh, rather than behind closed doors and stuff like that and uh, we can uh, fulfill our 21st year together because I'm, I'm mm. pretty sure that, that Fred's, Fred's wanted to go on for a, a little while yet. He's in good health and you know he's um, he's still got all his marbles about him. I do query that sometimes, of course, Greg, as you well know on air. But um, especially, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and of course the political rantings. What would we be without the the uh, the political <laughs> party political broadcasts on behalf of the Fred Clark party at times? <laughs> But that's the thing, obviously, there's, there's a lot of time to fill between sessions as well, isn't there? And for anyone listening here on Full Throttle who doesn't know, if you go to BSB Radio Online or you go and watch the live timing on the British Superbike website, you can actually listen to the audio there as well. So you can listen into Larry's interviews in the pit lane and Fred's commentary. Uh, I often do myself, actually, when I come in on a Friday, Larry, uh, I'm often listening in the car coming down the motorway or wherever I happen to be to hear what's happening at the circuit with you guys. And it's great. It's a really yeah. good way to catch up with what's going on. I think one of the, um, you know, there's two broadcast mediums effectively, isn't it, Greg, with uh, when it comes to covering British Superbikes, we just use British Superbikes for, for the time being. Uh, one, of course, yeah. is um, via the Eurosport feed, where yourself and, you know, the teams are involved with that. And that, of course, is audio as well as video. Um, and the other one, of course, is via BSB Radio, uh, where by Paul Marcel, broadcaster Paul Marcel, and last year we had Kerry Cobb involved with us, um, myself, Fred Clark, we have um, Jeff Judges, we have our sound engineer, Mike Rump, and that is transmitted online. And, and if you don't have facilities to um, access Eurosport, then, uh, as you rightly say, whilst there's no pictures there, um, there is the, the audio. And from when we go on air at 9 o'clock in the morning, usually on a race day, it has been a little bit earlier sometimes, right the way through until the last race is finished or the last qualifying session is finished at six, sometimes later than that on a night. It is wall-to-wall soundbar in one or two adverts and uh, other little interruptions that we get. But it is, um, in, uh, and over the past, what, 15 years or so since we've we've introduced BSB Radio in its current format, then it has been a, 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 a big success. And we do get a lot of people interacting with us, sending the messages in. And, you know, as you know, Greg, we uh, my company does most of the race programs. And we usually put a little caption competition in there to email uh, or, or text mm, the yeah. um, uh, the, the radio station in and things like that. And it, and it, it dovetails all very, very well with the, the product, which is 
BSB, and, and one would hope we, you know, if, if and I think um, the, the thoughts are that, uh, you know, when if we can get going this season, when we can get going this season, I'm pretty sure that, um, you know, that the, the, the promoter, Stuart Higgs, Jonathan Palmer and the, the rest of the team, you know, they, they will be looking at the, the various ways of which to broadcast the championship to the general public. Now, hopefully then people will be allowed, you know, into race meetings by the time we go. The social distancing will have been relaxed and we can get 30,000, 40,000 people into the various circuits to, towards the end of the season. But if not, uh, and, you know, we have to run or the, they have to run behind closed doors, which is definitely not a favoured option, I, I don't think. Then, of course, there's Eurosport and hopefully BSB Radio to, you know, to relay the the, the goodwill and the, the, the messages back to uh, you know to the people who um, who are not able to to get along to race meetings you know through being isolated or, or for whatever reason so uh, hopefully we can continue for for a good while yet yeah, and touch wood that will be sooner rather than later now well, that was you things... touching wood there wasn't it Greg it I was that, was the, wood, that yeah. was the desk yeah there it is um <laughs> we'll see what happens there now larry the, over the last few days of course uh, this going out on monday but over the weekend we've put a few tweets out haven't we about the fact we're going to be talking for the podcast um and obviously you've responded and there's some tremendous anecdotes which i must admit i've not heard before so i'm very much looking forward to these so i'll just reel through what you've put on twitter and you can tell us the story so <laughs> you've written mind, keep... it is for a family audience greg it's yeah, yeah exactly we've, we've as you put that it that's haven't we yeah okay yeah <laughs> we might have to do an uncut version larry <laughs> at some point um so yeah there's the first one where you've put uh yeah you've you've written that yourself i'll keep the stories clean for family audience apart from the time me and michael rutter shared a bed in london so what's that yeah, all about yeah well anybody knows that uh, michael rutter and i have this um love hate relationship um, he loves me and I hate him. It's it's one of them things. Me and Blade, we we we're really really good mates. But it was Michael that started this uh, this this habit, if you like. And when Old Scoop was there presenting the podiums and doing everything else, it was Rutter that decided that rather than drinking champagne or spraying champagne, I should be the person to wear it. Well, it then became uh, <laughs> they weren't bothered about winning races. Shaky and Rutter and Eastern and company. It was just who could soak me on the on the podium the, the most and, and literally I, I have been absolutely if I'd have fallen in the swimming pool I would have been drier. But um and, and Rush was always playing practical jokes. Well we went to a um the, the Ali Pali show as it was back then and um I'd arranged to um, pick Michael up. Uh Michael who lives in, in the Midlands and he obviously didn't want to pay for fuel to go given that I was passing his doorstep. So um I arranged to pick him up at Leicester Forest East Services. Then we went down to the Ali Pali show and it became readily apparent when we were checking into this hotel that the organisers booked, booked us that there was um, far too many bums and not enough seats effectively oh, no, classic. For, for the job. And I remember uh, Leon Haslam was there, there was James Tosland there, there was Chris Walker there, there was, um, uh, there was Leon's sister as well who had organised all the promo girls for the, the show as well through this, uh, this agency. So there we all were, was um, at this uh, little hotel in uh, uh, in one of the Muswell Hill, I think it was, and it became ra- rapidly apparent that um, we couldn't all stay anywhere. There was no other hotels in the vicinity. It was quite late in the night and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we said, well, we'll all have to double up anyway. So we went, uh, and, and Michael looked at me and said, well, I'd best share with you then. So we went into this room, which um, was half the size of a, 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 a normal room, and there was only one bed. Now, um, we, <laughs> at this, this point in time, as much as me and Michael were good buddies and we you know, got on really well, there's no way that we were sleeping in the same bed together. So um, it was a case of either we go out for some food, and then the first one back, of course, gets to the bed, the other one has to sleep on the floor. Um, or neither of us went out or whatever. Anyway, we, de- we decided that we would uh, would we'd go out, went out for a meal, drown out sorrows and everything else, and came back to find nobody in the in the, the bed, which was like quite a bit of quite a relief for me. I thought Michael must have you know managed to get some other accommodation. Anyway, there's me. I get uh, uh, ready for bed and goes uh, to pulls the covers back and what's blade done he's emptied the entire contents of the hospitality tray in the bed the coffee the tea the sugar oh. the uh, the the condensed milk everything else so uh so anyway that uh, that precluded me from sleeping in the middle of the bed and 
So the long shot is that uh, uh, he came in uh, chuckling and doing everything else a few minutes later. And um, I can't remember the exact outcome, but uh, suffice to say, me and Michael Rutter, there was there was one bed for the for the whole evening, and uh, in the centre of it was all the coffee and the tea and everything else which he deposited, which I don't think he thought that he would have to sleep in the same bed anyway. I think we both ended up on the floor that night, but uh, anyway, that that was uh, me and Rutter. Uh, just on the uh, on the another slight anecdote with Rutter was at another place we were staying at a Castle Coombe Grand National Meeting. Uh, we're all in the same hotel this time. We did have separate rooms. And uh, it became readily apparent that uh, when I met Michael in the restaurant later on, he charged uh, all the meals and drinks that he's, he, him and his party had had to my room, thinking that I didn't know. It turns out that somebody gave me the, <laughs> the, the uh, tipped me the nod on, on that one. So on another, party, another scoop for you there. Oh, my party! Um, I made them all of the uh, most expensive things on the menu. And uh, little did uh, Michael know until he checked out that we charged everything to his room, and his room was over. <laughs> his bill was over quid more than what mine was. So, uh, so anyway, so, you had the last laugh. I've got to I, say, with the yeah, with yeah. the bed with the bed in London, what happened when you checked out the hotel? Did you never get a bill about that or anything afterwards? Well, because it was um, we we were booked by a, an agency to provide hours there to provide a, a chat show at the Ali Pali show and all the riders were guests and everything else. So it was a, an agency that had uh, booked us all the the rooms and obviously they hadn't realised that there was as many people there and there, there wasn't enough accommodation for them. So we just checked out, didn't say anything, and uh, we never had a bill for it. Put it like that, but but uh, <laughs> suffice to say, it's the one and only time I've shared a. Uh, four walls with Michael Rutter overnight although that said you have it on your list there was another incident with Michael Rutter in the middle of the mm. night yes is this the 3am visit at home from Rutter Easton and Burn? this was the infamous one on uh, an evening um Three uh, British champions, Shane Byrne, uh, Michael Rutter, and, uh, well, you can't say Michael because he's never won a, a British championship, the only man never to win a British championship. In fact, the rumour has it that he didn't even win the egg and spoon race at the local uh, sports when he was a kid, Michael, but anyway. Um, I'll tell you what, Larry, I'm definitely after going to get Michael Rutter on a podcast very soon with the right to reply, well, I think. Well, uh, two British champions, Shaky Byrne and Stuart Easton, as well as Michael Rutter. Um, uh, we'd, anybody that may following motorcycle racing in the north of England, knows of an organisation called the North Yorkshire Road Racing Supporters Club, whereby I'd had a, an involvement in the very early days with a good friend uh, of mine called Chris Herring, and we kind of set this club up, which the idea was to raise funds through chat shows and raffles and everything else, dinner dances, and um, give some money to local racers to compete. And it's still going to this day, some, what, 35, 40 years since it was uh, was, was organised. Anyway, Blade, Shaky and uh, Ratboy had all been to one of these chat shows in North Allerton, and I obviously live in North Allerton. We'd all had a, a couple of drinks and what have you, and uh, we'd said our farewells on, on the night. Um, and I'd gone home, and I'd had a couple of sherbets as, as, as well. Now, it's fair to say that Stuart Easton wasn't drinking because Stuart was the, the chaperone for the for the evening. And Stuart, the, a couple of weeks before, had come to pick me up in North Allerton because we had another local promotional job to do. So he remembered where I lived. and so <laughs> Oh, he, no, this is going to be terrible. So, so my, Michael Shakey and uh, Stuart were staying <laughs> in this local establishment where the rumour or, or word got out that, well, you know, Oh, that that was it. They couldn't find anything to eat. The, the, it was midnight and all the local takeaways in our little two-star town here all shut at nine o'clock or whatever. And uh, they, they were hungry. They, they couldn't get anything to eat. The bed <laughs> breakfast wouldn't make them anything. So Stuart, in his, in his wisdom, said, well, I know where Scoop lives. Why don't we go and see Scoop, see if we can have get a sandwich. Anyway, I think <laughs> this I is think at three o'clock in the three o'clock in the morning, Larry. The, the idea was vetoed. Eventually, hunger got the better of them, better of them. And the next thing, I'm in bed, and I'd had a couple of half shandies as well. And I thought we heard a knock on the door. My wife Sue said, "There's somebody at the door," and I obviously couldn't really be stirred. She was trying to wake me up and look, Larry. I'm sure there's somebody at the door, and I'm looking at the clock. It's a cabbie. It's, it's half past two, quarter three in the morning. And so I turned over and went back to sleep. And so Sue, my brave wife, decided to go down and answer <laughs> the door. And the dog cowering behind her and everything else. 
and at this point I'd sort of like I'd, I'd come to my senses a little bit and realised what was happening and I'd ventured down the stairs with my dressing gown to hear her saying get in this house now all three of you <laughs> and she'd answered the door and she'd seen Stuart there and she'd seen Shaky there and then Michael Rutter appeared from around the side of the, the door with a bottle of wine as a peace offering which he'd won in the raffle and <laughs> saying that they were hungry and they couldn't get anything to eat, so would we be able to make them a sandwich, or would Sue be able to make them a sandwich? <laughs> so, so all three of them were lined up on my sofa, and she made she duly made them all a sandwich, and she said, when you've had this sandwich, you leave and you don't make any row because we're in a very, very quiet residential area with lots of kids and lots of old people, and you don't make any noise whatsoever, and you go and that yes that would that would be that would be perfectly good. So Shaky Rutter and uh, Stuart sat on my sofa in North Allerton, uh, all eating the sandwich, and they finished off. And Julie left, and we went to switch the lights off and headed back upstairs, whereby in the little cul-de-sac that we lived, you thought the Monaco Grand Prix had kicked off. Oh but no! Stuart decided that he would do a couple of donuts in the in the car that he'd got and. And rev it up, and a few handbrake turns, and everything else. Well, one by one, the the lights went on in the the street, and bit by bit, eventually, <laughs> eventually no. they disappeared. And uh, I was walking the dog the following morning. Got up completely with a little bit of a hangover, and a very friendly little area that I live in. But it wasn't very friendly that morning because I had all the neighbours <laughs> out with uh, with purple faces asking me what the hell had gone on at uh, our house that night. And the, uh, the the most vocalist about the, amongst them was a guy who lived a couple of doors away from me, who was a bit of a big bike racing fan, and he also used to you know ask me about bike racing. And I said to this guy, I said, "Well, you know, I'm terribly sorry. You know, it was some friends of mine who turned up, and it was a big practical joke, blah blah blah." And I said, "You won't believe who was in this car." And this guy was, you know, he was looking at me daggers, um, <clears throat> and I said, "It was Michael Rutter, it was Shane Byrne, and it was Stuart Easton." And uh, his his mood changed, and he said, "Well, uh, he, said, I'll, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, you know, these things happen. He said, if you can get me their autographs next week, he says, uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll say no more about it." So uh, I got <laughs> uh, we were at uh, wherever the following wherever the following weekend, and needless to say, these uh, all, all three of them were, uh, were were laughing about it. So I got them to uh, to, to sign. Uh, I think it was a race winner's cap at the time, and give them to this give it give it to this guy signed by Shaky Rutter and uh, Eastern, and uh, um, he was happy enough. But uh, about two months later, he uh, he, he left. So the, the sales sign went up. So, <laughs> so, uh, so oh, that dear. was the the three a.m. visit for a cheese sandwich at, at our house by two British <laughs> champions and Michael Rutter. Uh, well, I feel for Sue on that one, I think, more than anyone. The, the closest I can get to that is driving a rental car back to the airport in Jerez after World Superbikes in 2017 with shaky burn alongside in the passenger seat. And we're going around a roundabout, um, left-hand drive car, obviously, because we're in Spain. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, what the hell's going on here? And it feels like there's a puncture or something at the back. The car started to lose lose grip at the rear. Of course, shaky had only gone and pulled the handbrake on, hadn't he, in the middle yeah. of the roundabout. Uh, but that yeah. sounds like nothing in comparison with some of the other stories you hear. Well, again, the, these are these are stories. I, I have a thousand like that, but um, well, that was quite quite surreal. My this little cul-de-sac in uh, in in rural North Yorkshire, where <clears throat> all three all three <laughs> Grand Prix riders, yeah, you know, Rutter TT winner, Shaky Burn World Championship race winner, Stuart Easton British champion, all this sort of thing. It's the last thing you expect three top racing <laughs> stars to rock up for a cheese sandwich at three o'clock in the morning but anyway I, <laughs> and then I, cause I absolute the, carnage i mean what uh, what were you think were you laughing at the time or were you thinking oh no please go away um, a mixture of, a mixture of everything because uh, the you know the the devil the renegade inside me thought it was quite funny waking the, <laughs> the street up but if i had a, a, a school-aged kid there that had been walking up at three o'clock in the morning because these of course take place during the week the the church yeah. shows and this this was a tuesday night wednesday morning so all the kids had to go to school the following day and all the dogs were barking at this point in time <laughs> and i i find it quite funny but um but yeah it's uh yeah it, it, it's uh it's something that again not a lot of people know know about but it, it was quite funny when it happened <laughs> now another thing quite a lot of people probably don't know about is that uh, i think you unlike most people larry have actually successfully been 
uh, ridden over in the pit lane. Was this Donington, I think? Um, yeah, um, the year was 2004. I'd been doing this job for four years uh, in pit lane, and um, again, I managed to. Is a you know you've been up and down pit lane uh, nowadays, where it's very very regulated with the amount of people that are allowed in in pit lane. Mm. It's you know it's a very dangerous environment when you've got motorbikes and everything else was in past year. And especially and in your case, you've got headphones yeah, on as well because you've got no uh, you know that that's. The, the because you've got your cans on and because you're listening to uh, what's yeah. going on, you effectively you don't have that that perception that there's a motorbike uh, just in your vicinity. And I have been clipped a couple of times, foot pegs, you know, ripping trousers and things like that. It's <laughs> you know we've we've been close on one or two occasions. Well, this particular time was 2004, and it was the latter stages of what we would now call data tag extreme qualifying. And of course, everybody is out there trying to get out on track and get a, a quick lap in. And um, James Ellison, it was, who was riding for the Bernie Tolman Gentin squad. And he was running as a privateer that year when the, the championship was divided up into uh, what we would call works bikes and cut bikes. And he was riding for yeah. Bernie Tolman on the Gentin Yamaha. He's come back from uh, from a couple of seasons in the world championship at, at James. And uh, it was a few minutes to go, and I was halfway down the, the pit lane at Donington Park, and I was reporting what was happening, and that James Allison was just putting a new rear tyre in, and he was going back out, and Yukio Kagiyama had just left pit lane, and John Reynolds had just done this, and Shaky Byrne had done that, and, and everything else. And uh, I was kind of a third of the way across. If you can imagine the pit lane being the nearest is the pit uh, the pit garage doors and the yeah. furthest across is the uh, the pit wall. Well, I was kind yeah. of like a third of the way out from the, the garage doors. And I, you know, I had my wits about me and uh, just up in the distance, probably around a hundred meters away, I could see Ellison just leaving his, uh, his pit garage. Of course, he was quite keen to uh, get out onto track. And just as James was accelerating away, he was on my trajectory. And the, the idea is, uh, over the years, is don't try and get out of anybody's way. Just if you if you move, you're a, you know you're more likely to get hit. If you know, stand, engage a rider with eye contact, and they will miss you. And 99 times out, 999 times out of 100, it works. Except just as James was accelerating away, he happened to look behind him. Oh, uh, no. the, the sort of thing that you would see when a rider is leaving pit lane how just for one or two seconds, they just cast their eye back in the direction of the uh, the, the riders on track. But by this time, accelerating away, accelerating away of course, the, the 50 or so metres to me had become virtually nothing. Mm. And I'm stood there just waiting for James to cast his eye back in the right direction. Um, and it didn't come in time. And uh. he, And I thought, well, I've got to do a split-second decision here. I've got to dive out of the way because... It, at the speed that he was doing, again, I'm not sure what the pit lane speed limit was at the time, but he would be around about maybe 40 or 50 miles an hour. It doesn't sound very much, but but uh, I jumped one way, and by which time James had just, to say, started looking to the direction that he he, he intended, but it was too late, and he, he hit me. And um, he pulled the brake on a little bit to arrest the speed, but he, he bundled me... Um, Base over apex, uh, down pit lane, head, knees, head, knees, head, knees, head, knees. Um, do, doing a, an, a personal impression of an Olympic gymnast. Um, whereas James had fallen off the bike and the bike had ended up against the pit wall. And James, who was leading the privateers championship at the time, was, I seem to recall, laid on the floor as well, which he'd hurt his leg. Um, what a scene of chaos it must have been. Yeah, and, 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 and I remember thinking... I picked myself up. There was there was no pain. I remember that there was no pain, mm. um, but I was aware that um, there was a lot of blood uh, about, oh, and yeah. I'd uh, I'd ended up he'd he'd it sort of like pushed me as far down as Jack Valentine's garage when Jack was running the Valmoto Triumph team with Craig Jones that particular year, and I think Jim Moody as well. And um, the first person on the scene was uh, was Annabelle. Annabelle uh, Webb, who's the starter, yes. and Annabelle's been part of BSB for a long time. Her, her parents are still marshals in pit lane. Her granddad yeah. was Harold Coppock, who used to be one of the major sponsors back in the 1960s and 1970s. And all I remember was Annabelle coming and picking me up uh, 
and bundling me into Jack Valentine's garage and sitting me down on a chair there where um, I, I resembled a casualty from Hamburger Hill. The, there was, I'd um, broken my nose, I'd broken a couple of fingers. <laughs> oh, dear idea, uh, really? I'd, I'd, I'd knocked a tooth out, I'd split my lip, I'd skinned my, my arms, my elbows, uh, as well as just, you know, the shock of it all. And, uh, Come on, and Larry, I, you, that, was a, that sounds like a terrible accident. That was a really well, bad one. It, it it was it was it was I was quite shook up about it and but I said I'm okay I'm okay and I, I looked at my cans on the floor and quite simply Greg without putting too fine an emphasis on it they saved my life because my cans I've gone down on my the side of my head my temple effectively Oof. and and the substantial cans that you were wearing at the time not like the little earphones that you wear now um, had effectively taken the 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 impact they were absolutely oh. smashed to smithereens um, and. Um, yeah, I, I was, you know, relatively speaking, I was okay. In which case, James had picked himself up, come into the garage to see if I was okay, and James was quite distressed about it. And I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm okay, James." You know, which case they insisted that um, that I go off to the medical centre and get checked out. And I, I didn't want too much of a fuss at this. I could see uh, my, you know, my. I needed a little bit of bandaging up or whatever, but I was more concerned that I was going to miss the final five minutes of, of qualifying. <laughs> so, so, uh, so anyway, I went back to the med centre and um, the you know which was which was at Donington then as it is now underneath the uh, the grandstand, and uh, they patched me up and they you know they wanted to send me off for X-rays for a suspected broken collarbone and suspected broken fingers and things like that. And uh, all I could remember, Greg, was there was a, a race at the end of the qualifying session. I forget what race it was now, but there was a, a race which I thought I need to be there to officiate at the, for the podium. And the doctor there said, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. You, you know, you, you're going off to hospital, if anywhere. And I, I said, no, no, look, there's, a, there's, another, there's another race here which I, I need to, to get to. And this anyway, is all with, uh, with, with a broken tooth, broken fingers and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, Taddy O'Connor's got a wonderful picture on uh, some social media sites where he um, there's a picture of him. He was running the Honda team at the time, um, and I'm all bandaged up with uh, all my war wounds, and Taddy's pulling her face, laughing at me and pointing at me. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, but the worst thing about it was uh, was my, my poor wife Sue again, who uh, <laughs> at the time she was in the media centre, and there was this, uh, you know, there was this. Uh, who's and ours, everything else, and she'd say, and somebody said, "Oh, what's happened there?" And somebody said to Sue, "Oh, she's. I think a marshal's been run over in pit lane." Uh, don't know. And Sue had carried on with the business in the media centre, doing whatever she was doing, not knowing that the said marshal was was me, who was by now in the medical centre, uh, getting patched up. Um, James and his girlfriend at the time had come along, very distressed, and asked if I was okay, because of course James thought he'd killed me. Um, but anyway, we we were we got uh, bandaged up and uh, we managed to get back out again. And uh, I'll have it been on that I did do the final podium of the day. I, did you? I was, did you really? I was battered. I was bruised. I was very very second hand. Um, and uh, but yeah, we we managed to get back out and and do that. The funniest thing. For, from my point of view, was what I got told afterwards was the following day. You can imagine I, I was like a box that had gone twelve rounds with Mike Tyson. I was absolutely yeah. battered and bruised and everything else. I could hardly get out of bed. And getting in the bath that night with all scrubs and everything else was good fun. But at the time of uh, when it happened, the Fred had had some people up in the commentary box, and uh, I was broadcasting at the time, of course, and the microphone just they went dead. When, uh, so you were actually talking, were you? Was it in the moment of impact? You were actually talking live. Wow. Yes, I was talking. Yeah, I was in mid floor when all of a sudden it was as if you'd just dropped a microphone for argument's sake, and there was a yeah. little bit of background noise and whatever. Yeah, and Fred just off the uh, off the cuff uh, just said, "It sounds like Scoop's been run over." And, oh no! Um, <laughs> you actually and he cast his eye out of the window, uh, hundred yards beneath his commentary box, and he ex explained. <laughs> He has. Scoop has been run over. <laughs> so, uh, oh no! So uh, anyway, that that was uh, that was my near is death that, experience with. Is that recorded anywhere in terms of Fred's audio or the video of it? Is there any footage? I think it was ninety four, Greg. I think it was just before a couple of years before we started doing the 
the BSB radio, so I'm not sure that it would be. I don't uh, think we're Ofcom regulated back then, so I'm not sure that there would be. But quite often, Fred, that's one of his uh, favourite analogies, is when we're talking about things. He said the, the day that I looked out of the country box and saw you flat on your face, Scoop, he said, um, he said I must apologise. I did laugh, but I didn't realise quite how badly you were injured. But but uh, <laughs> anyway, we it's, that that might be the uh, the title of the autobiography, Greg. It sounds like Scoop's been run over. So, yeah. but uh, but that, oh, that's dear, three dear. of my experiences. I, I have literally a, a thousand others that. The day that we were in on the April Fool's joke for Shaky Byrne, that we told him that there was uh, the inaugural uh, Donington Park Omnibus Grand Prix, whereas we were getting all the various riders, leading riders from various championships around the world as celebrity London bus drivers uh, around the uh, Donington Park circuit. The only problem is they couldn't go under the Dunlop Bridge, so they had to put an off-road section in to bypass it. And there was going to, there was going to be promotional work in, in London, and the start money was 20 grand, and there was prize money down to the last place. And poor old shaky, I got everybody in on it. I, I even got some of the some of our broadcast team at Eurosport, the likes of Barry Notley and Craig Doyle and people like that who were working as broadcasters at the time to ring Shaky up and do this. And we, we got official letters dra- drafted <laughs> up from Donington Park to ask him if he'd be involved. And poor old Shaky, this, this went on for weeks, Greg. This went on for weeks. And the more it went I'm on... I'm so glad I know this story. This is fantastic. The more it went on, the more we... Even his team boss at the time, Paul... Paul Bird said, uh, you know, he wrote to him, re- releasing him from, from his contract to do the inaugural Donington Omnibus Grand Prix. And, <laughs> and everybody was in on this. It, it was an idea that Steve Parrish saw in my, in my uh, head. And I just thought we can do this as an April Fool's joke. And There's it, a surprise if Stavros was involved. Then it, it went on and on and on to the point that when eventually I had to let Shaky down and say, look, Shaky, this, you know, this is all a big wind up. I don't think he spoke to me for, for about <laughs> three months, but... Uh, but yeah, that was uh, that. That was back in the day. But um, yeah, did you let him know privately or publicly in some sort of interview? How did you break the news to him? Um, well, this was of course before social media. Um, this was mm. you know back in the you know round about two thousand four, two thousand five, I think it was. So the you know the the likes of MySpace and things like that, the Friends United, the original uh, social media yeah. sites, you know, they weren't that they weren't as uh, as effective as the the modern day ones. And I think I had to ring him up eventually and say, look, shaky, you know, this is all big wind up, and you know, when somebody just goes silent on you at the end of the phone, and you don't know whether they've come <laughs> up or whatever. But uh, and he said, I'll get you back, Carter. I will get you back for this, Carter, on a number of occasions. <laughs> I, I was subject to a number of Michael Rutter esque soakings on the podium, I think, after that for a for a little while. But um, yeah, Shaky, uh, he's, he's been a good friend over, over the years as, as Shaky. Uh, he's a, a guy that, you know, we've, in, in our 10 years at BSB, uh, you know, our paths have crossed on uh, a number of occasions. And just before we were talking, Greg, about how some riders, you know, when they go off to other championships, sometimes it goes to the head a little bit. And, you know, they, they, they forget who the, the people are that they were the friends. Well, I can honestly say that Shaky Byrne has been one of them guys that has been Shaky Byrne from the first day he raced the Superbike back in 1995 96 for, uh, for the Harris Brothers as part of the Fast Bikes team, right the way through to his current career in broadcasting. Shaky Byrne is the same Shaky Byrne. There's no end braces about him whatsoever. When he was in Grand Prix, World Superbikes, all that sort of thing, he was the guy that used to run out of the garage to, you know, to talk to me rather than me have to go and find him. Whereas a lot of people, as anybody knows, trying to get interviews with riders at World Championship level is virtually impossible for people like myself. Shaky used to be another one. Well, those twins are another two like that. Tom Sykes, um, Leon Haslam, people like that. I've never ever forgotten the roots, but uh, you know that's so refreshing. Very, very so true. refreshing. Well, uh, yeah, I look forward to some of those uh, anecdotes with Shaky this year. Hopefully, some more Shaky Show podcasts and some commentaries together, maybe at some point. But I will definitely, without any shadow of a doubt, thank you very much, Scoop. Be mentioning the <laughs> the Donington Omnibus Grand Prix at some point to Shaky later this year. One of the promotional activities we had lined up for him was to um, be a bus driver around Trafalgar Square. <laughs> and he agreed to that, did he? Yeah, oh yeah, all this was agreed. <laughs> Fantastic. To I, I think it might might have even been uh, uh, called Richard Coventry, who's the uh, director of the the TV shows nowadays. There was uh, there was Coventry, yes. there was Ben Miller, and one or two other people. We were all in on it. You know, we'll provide a uniform, shaky you. You know, you just need to drive the bus. Have you ever driven a bus before? Well, we'll get you some lessons. And there was, there was, there was all this to, to, to the point that the 
the more people that, that became involved with, as I say, we I think Stuart Higgs might have been involved. I know Paul Bird released him temporarily from his contract to to, to do these sort of things, <laughs> and and we'll send the camera down. What what's uh, you know what was his uh, inside leg measurement uh, and uh, jacket size for the bus driver's suit and and all all this. It was, you imagine it's like um, like on the buses, guy like Blakey off on the buses. <laughs> yes, yeah. It was one of them, but uh, but Perrochet. Uh, I don't know whether it was the twenty grand first prize that swayed him or or the 10 grand start money or something else like that but i would was, say that had quite <laughs> quite a lot to do with it yeah definitely up for it was uh shaky i noticed it was well uh, i've not seen reference in any of the books to it yet but anyway it's something that happened we'll make sure of that, that he, he might might just have uh, erased it from his memory because it was too painful greg <laughs> that's tremendous what a great anecdote we'll come back to that for sure just before we go larry um we did talk a bit about the rallying, don't we? Because you're a pretty quick driver and, and co-driver yourself alongside Paul Bird, um, even on a world championship level. Uh, yeah, it's my round of golf. I have a little rally car. All the people know I traditionally just use it. We In a normal season, we, we flat out, aren't we, Greg, from sort of like mm, February yeah. through to sort of November time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you get two or three months off after that. And, and luckily, up at my local track at Croft, that's when there's two or three little rallies on. So I have a Peugeot 206. I've had it for a number of years now. It's not expensive to run. And we go and have a play, invariably in the snow or in the rain or in the wind and ice and everything else. But um, yes, yeah, it's, it's good fun. But prior to that, I did um, uh, I, I did co-driving. Uh, living up here in the remote North Yorkshire moors, we have forests on our doorstep. And of course, those forests were home to the Lombard RSC rally and other events for many, many years. So most people in North Yorkshire are born, are brought up with the, the sport of rallying. And uh, we've, you know, as kids trek around the forest in the middle of the night watching Mark II BD escorts and stuff like that. And uh, I've always had a passion for, for rallying and uh, navigating. I've always loved maps uh, since, uh, you know, since I was a kid and, you know, plotting routes and stuff like that. Really enjoyed it. So when the opportunity came to co-drive with a couple of friends of mine, we managed to, to, to do it. We did a couple of seasons in the national championship and really enjoyed it to the point that uh, the time Paul Bird, who had was just sort of like getting acquainted with at the time, said uh, he fancied doing a bit. Could I find somebody who might hire him a rally car? And I managed to find somebody. And uh, what about co-driving? Uh, we couldn't find a co-driver, so I would have to do. So anyway, a couple of years down the line, Paul and I did uh, did the British Championship. We did okay in uh, various events. Won a couple. Um, and it culminated with us doing the British Round of the World Rally Championship in 2001, the network here, Rally GB. Uh, where Paul was driving, I was co-driving, and uh, it was the year of Colin McRae's infamous role in the Martini Ford, yes. if you remember. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think when we went past it a couple of hours later, I think it was still smouldering anyway. But uh, we got to the finish. We managed to uh, just uh, use uh, our good friend Tony Jardine to win the media award. And as a result, we went across the finish ramp with uh, the likes of uh, uh, the, the, I think, Marcus Cronin won it, and uh, the Richard Burns finished the the second, like Harry Rubb and Perra, people like that, all these top drivers, top professional drivers, and the old chicken farmer from Cumbria and the North Yorkshire <laughs> journalist managed to go across with them because we'd won the media award with, with my job. We finished 39th overall out of, I think it was something like 130, 140 competitors. Uh, we had our trials and tribulations along the way, one or two uh, little offs and one or two uh, little set twos that me and Betty had in the car. But apart from that, it, it was a, like, you know, that was an ambition realised, uh, Greg. You know, the seeing the likes of Hannu Michalistic, Blomqvist, Bjorn Voldegaard, and, yeah. uh, Henri Teuven and Jimmy McRae, Russell Brooks, people like Coy, Roger Clark in, in the local forest never ever did I think that I would ever get to compete in a rally car let alone um, be a winner of a class of the world championship event so uh, yeah really really good times and uh, uh, eventually uh, I got birdie sacked me he told me I was no good eventually I told him I was no good from the start but uh, Paul went on to a very successful career whereby at one point in time uh, he was ranked number two in the UK to Sir Colin McRae Wow. Um, so, yeah, and his son, of course, Frank, is now uh, involved in uh, the yes. sport, uh, both circuit racing and rallying. And whereas Paul was a damn good driver, not a patch on his son. His son is phenomenal. Frank, I, uh, I commentated on Frank, funny enough, for a Formula Renault Eurocup race in Barcelona at the end of 2017, and he's very quick, isn't he? He is. Uh, I'm not sure the single seaters are his forte. Uh, and I've said that to Paul. He went right the way through uh, Formula uh, Ford or for, uh, Formula uh, Four, as it is uh, now. 
um, mm. right the way through the um, Formula Renault, Formula Renault Euro Cups, uh, and into F3 and things like that. Uh, and Frankie never really, for my money, showed his his true form when it came to the uh, to the open top. Sticking with a car with a roof on it, he he, he changes colours. He's he's won a couple of endurance races with the Sicily Motorsport team out in Abu Dhabi and in, mm. in the, the, another one in the Far East. Uh, he's uh, going to be driving for. The factory Bentley team at a number of endurance events this uh, this year. Wow! And as far as the uh, rally is concerned, he won five rounds out of the eight in the Motorsport News Circuit Rally Championship. When you consider that at the start of the season, the guy had never sat in a rally car before, and he ends up winning five of the eight rounds. He's, wow! He's a bit of a talent. He's, uh, he's young mm. Frank, but you can't get a word out of him. He's a man of very very few words. is Frank, but uh, uh, with a little bit of luck, a little bit of his uh, dad's guidance, and uh, who knows, you might be seeing a future future Formula One style, Frank. Yeah, keep our eyes on that. Well, Larry, we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? And we'll definitely have to do some more podcasts. We'll have to get Fred Clark involved. I'd like to speak with your wife, Sue, at some point as well to get her take on offence. <laughs> but in She's the meantime... Yeah, poor Sue. But that would be great to have a chat with Sue. Well, you will know Sue. You will know Sue. I mean, she, she marks X for no publicity. But for, for those people that don't, and especially those that uh, are involved yeah. in BSB... Uh, she, for many, many years, has been involved with the podium uh, ceremonies. She's the person that passes mm. the trophies to the dignitaries to give on to the riders, and she's the one that has to go and headlock the riders to get them onto the podium at the correct time. And along with uh, various uh, colleagues, Holly Haminder and, uh, and Karen and various other people like that, my job doing the podiums, I couldn't do it quite simply without them. And uh, poor old Sue, she's been seconded in on uh, for about, I don't know about the past ten seasons now to to do that. Invariably, she's out in the windswept podium in the rain and the wind and getting soaked in champagne and everything else. And uh, poor last does it because I ask her to. So uh, it makes my job so much. And she's the one that sticks the dots through the doors for the Eurosport team to tell who the presenters are and all this, just to try and make it look that little bit yeah. more professional as well. So, uh, and she's, yeah, we've been together nearly 40 years now. She understands what motorsport is, you know, what, how it's uh, involved out in our lives. Uh, you know, we, we were there when I did my racing as a raw teenager, uh, spending every penny we had between us. And, uh, you know, here we are. As soon as uh, we get going again, we'll we'll be there trying to keep our end up in Berlin on the podium. Well, Larry, thanks ever so much. Look forward to that. Thanks for the funny stories, especially the one about Shaky. We'll, we'll definitely come back to that. And uh, hopefully I will see you in the not-too-distant future. I'd best put uh, Shaky on block or something, because as soon as this comes out, I don't know if, uh, there's only one person who's going to ring about that, isn't it? But no, <laughs> my pleasure, Greg, really. And uh, keep up the good work. You know, since you've come into BSB, been a bit of a fresh air. And I think uh, most people like your commentary style. Uh, you like me, you like your stats, you like your facts. You do an awful lot of work beforehand. Mm. And uh, unlike, you know, some people who just rock up and uh, expect it there, uh, you spend a lot of time. I, I realise that yeah. the amount of time that I spend doing all the stats and uh, yeah. everything else, you know, you're only as good uh, as uh, as that information. And uh, you, you've certainly spent a lot of time. Hopefully, at some point in time, we can have a chat over a beer to race meeting. And uh, I yes. think a lot of people will go for that. Yeah, well, thanks very much for that, Larry. I really appreciate it. And definitely because we don't have much time to really see each other, do we, at race meetings, apart from when we're either live on the telly or you're live on the uh, on the circuit. Or following each other on the grid. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're usually doing, isn't it? Yeah. Which is when my next door neighbour normally sees me. I say I'm not doing my job properly if I get on TV. So, but uh, no, it all works. <laughs> all works well, and I think you know yourself and James and, uh, and us all. We have a we, we all appreciate each other's job. I think when it comes yeah. to that, and and if you know, I realise that you know, live when you're doing a live grid walk for TV, you can't stop and redo it. And that's why I just dip out and go back to a rider when necessary. And I think there is that appreciation of each other's jobs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's why it works so well. The thing is, people like it when we bump into each other anyway, don't we? It all makes the yeah, show, really. It, yeah, it just adds that little bit. You know, we have, we'll have to do a little bit of a dance next time, Greg. That'll get them Yeah, we will. We will. We'll have to, um, we'll both ask each other a question and then we'll both move on. <laughs> we can fix yeah, on the, each other's grid walks. The, uh, the, 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 the grid statistical quiz or something. What's Greg going to ask? That's a good idea. What's Greg going to ask Greg? I'll have to try to do that, though. It, it all it all works quite well, and it's all it's all in you know, a high pressure environment, you know, where the riders are under so much pressure. We perhaps, you know, just try and enlighten it that little bit because we're under an awful lot of pressure as well. Mm. With you, you with directors in your ears, me with you know the timing schedule where we've got to play the you know the intro music and everything else, and you know there's a lot <laughs> of pressure that goes into it. It uh, it doesn't just happen, does it, Craig? But uh, but it it, work, it seems to work quite well. I hope so. <laughs> Touch wood again. <laughs> Somehow it does. Yeah, I'll see you there very soon. I hope, Larry. 
Yeah, hopefully, Greg. Good to speak, mate. And you just get the feeling we haven't heard half of it, don't you? We'll definitely have to make sure we get Fred Clark on the show in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much again to Larry. Scoop, of course, as he's known. Don't forget to follow him on Twitter as well. And if you've actually listened to the podcast because you're a subscriber, have a look on Twitter because Larry's tweeting uh, a newspaper cutting of that time when he was run over by James Ellison in the pit lane at Donington Park. So you can see the person who thought it was a rather amusing accident at the time. Have a look at that on Larry's Twitter. And don't forget to listen to him, of course, on BSB Radio and Trackside if you happen to be at a BSB meeting anytime in the not-too-distant future. In the meantime, thank you again from me, Greg Haynes. Thank you from all of us here at Eurosport. Next Monday, we'll be into June by then. And Michael Hill, the World Superbike Paddock Show host, who, of course, is a Moto America commentator, will have been broadcasting from his home in London for that action which is happening this weekend at Road America, live on Eurosport. All of the live Moto America action. Finally, we're going to get some bike racing to watch again. And hopefully more... Well, let's hope we don't have to wait for too much longer. But hopefully this has taken your mind off a bit of the carnage that's going on in the world of politics, certainly in the UK at the moment, and uh, the general negativity we seem to have in the news, which doesn't seem to be getting any better. And great chat there with Larry Carter. Finally, don't forget, if you haven't subscribed, you can on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You can also find the full archive of all of the podcasts going back to March 2018 with James Whittam and Shaky Byrne and various other guests we've had recorded either from home or recorded in many cases in the commentary boxes at the various circuits we go to for BSB and World Superbikes as well. Thanks again from Greg Haynes and we'll be chatting with Michael Hill here on Full Throttle episode number 81 coming your way next week. Until then, look after yourselves. <laughs>